You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. you're here with us today, whether that's in person, at one of our six campuses, or streaming online. If we haven't met yet, and I hope we have, my name is Susan Walsh, and I'm the campus director at our Orient campus. One thing I love about my job is being part of a team of people who are passionate about Jesus and loving their neighbor. So if you're here with us in person, I want you to know that the hub is open. It's that very conspicuous place in the lobby with orange signs and people. Well, not orange people, but people in orange, I mean. Anyway, as things continue to open up, you may want to find out more about how to get connected here beyond weekend services. The Hub is a one-stop shop for just that. So if you're new, or it's been a while, or if you're just ready to take some next steps, stop by the Hub in the lobby. Here's another opportunity for our in-person attendees. Believe it or not, we still have openings in our K-Kids program for volunteers because there's nothing like being around kids to bring us back to childlike faith and delight in the little things. Our K-Kids program is for babies through elementary students during Sunday services, and we'd love to have you join our team. So you can take out your phone even now and check out the app or go to kensingtonchurch.org kids serve. And I won't be offended if you're looking at your phone while I'm talking. And while you're on your phone or tablet or personal computer, remember that we're social. So engage with us daily on Facebook or Instagram. It's a great way to stay in the know and to engage with the community throughout the week. On Facebook, like and follow our central Kensington page, as well as your campus-specific group. We'll get right back to this incredible Go series in just a moment. We're in week three already, and I've enjoyed every moment. It's giving us such a fresh vision about God and our purpose on this planet. I wanted to point out that tomorrow is a holiday. It's Memorial Day, and I'm sure most of us have 
plans to enjoy the day with family and friends, but let's remember the men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for their country and our freedoms. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, happy Sunday, everybody. You guys ready to go? Let's go. Awesome, let's go. Let's go. Hey, I want to welcome all of you here who are in the room. For those of you who are watching via stream, welcome wherever you are and whether you're a part of the Troy campus, another physical campus, or whether you're a part of our online campus, I'm grateful that we can be connected in this manner. And so what we wanted to do right now is to do exactly what Susan mentioned in the video and just take a few moments and to remember and honor those who sacrificed in service for our country. And as many of you know, I was born and I was raised in Canada, but now I consider the United States exactly. Canada's a great place too, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but now I consider the United States my home and I love this country. And one of the things that I am keenly aware of is that our freedom is not free. And so many of the privileges that we enjoy, it's because men and women courageously gave up their lives. And so we want to spend a few moments praying, but at the same time also remembering and honoring family members. And if you are someone who has lost a family member in service to this country, we also remember and honor you today. So would you join me in prayer? So God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the courage, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice of these men and women, God. And we are so incredibly grateful for them, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this weekend in the midst of everything that is going on, Lord, as we are having fun and laughing and hopefully enjoying some really good food with loved ones, Lord, that we would, you would also remind us to take a few moments and just to be able to honor the memory of those, God, who paid the ultimate price for us, God. And we also pray, Lord, for their families because these people, they were brothers and sisters. They were mothers and they were fathers and they were sons and they were daughters, God. And for the family that they have been left behind, Lord, we pray, Lord, your comfort, your peace, God. And we also pray for your continued provision and your protection over them, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, for our nation, God. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, as we continue on, something else that I want to mention as well is something that's, that's going to be happening in less than two weeks. And it is a comedy night that's going to be happening right here at our Troy campus. And if you are looking for a night out without the kids and a night that involves laughter, fun, connecting with other people, as well as great dessert, we want to invite you to come and be a part of this. And so we're going to also be having childcare if that's something that you need. But it's going to be on a first come, first serve basis, and it is limited. And so if this is something that would interest you, we want to invite you to go to our website. You can also go to our app, and we'd love for you to sign up and be a part of it because it is, it is going to be a lot of fun. And so as Susan mentioned, we are in the third week of our series, Go. And throughout the last two weeks, we've been talking about the incredible work that God has been doing through this organization called the Timothy Initiative, or TTI, which is our 11th global partner. And we, along with six other Metro Detroit churches, have committed to supporting the work of TTI in northern India, which is a predominantly Hindu region. And so today, what we wanted to do is we wanted to watch the story of a woman named Indrani, because God has done and is doing, and not only in her life, but also through her as well, some incredible things in that region. And then afterwards, I'm going to come up and share with all of us how we can be involved in this as well. So let's take a look at her story. Before Indrani met Jesus, her life was full of darkness. The deaths of her husband and father drove her to an obsession, an obsession with power, an obsession with witchcraft. Because when she practiced witchcraft and channeled the spirits, 
She could see her husband and father. She could talk to them. It made her feel like they weren't really gone, that she wasn't alone. So she gave herself over to the spirits and their power. But that power became petrifying. My village saw the evil power I possessed and were afraid. They knew I was a powerful witch doctor and that I could cast spells to destroy their lives. I terrified them. So they rejected and abandoned me. Eventually, so did my family. I was all alone. Then one day, a disciple maker named Dilka met Indrani. Like others who knew her, Dilka could see that Indrani battled darkness. But unlike the others, she had the answer to Indrani's problems, Jesus. Dilka shared with Indrani of Jesus' great love and power and invited her to church. Indrani agreed to go, but only with the hopes of accessing more power and becoming an even more powerful witch doctor. While Indrani went to church to gain more power for herself, God had other plans. The church prayed for me, and as they did, I saw a great light pushing out the darkness inside of me. The evil that had held me for so long was gone. When I returned home, I tried doing witchcraft, but I couldn't. Something was holding me back. As I went to worship the spirits, I heard a voice say, You have victory in me. I love you so much, my child. When I heard this, I gave my life to Jesus. Indrani removed the idols, charms, and shrines from her home. She burned them, renounced her ties with evil, and declared that she was now a follower of Jesus. Her community couldn't believe her transformation. The evil that consumed her was gone, and everything about her changed. She looked different. She acted different. And she had a new purpose in life to know God and help others to know Him too. Indrani has become an incredible disciple maker. She has led eight of her family members to the Lord. She shared the gospel with more than 1,100 people. She's brought the good news of Jesus to neighboring villages. Four of those villages now have followers of Jesus whom Indrani disciples. She has also helped start multiple house fellowships, one of which is in her home. A home that was full of idols is now a house of worship to the one true God. Jesus has transformed Indrani's life, and he's used her to bring many people into the kingdom. This is what happens when people meet Jesus. This is what happens when disciples make disciples. It's a cool story. And when I watched that for the very first time, it reminded me of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because that's what happens. And that's what we see in Indrani's story, and that there was this darkness present inside of her. But when Jesus entered, who is light, that darkness and that light could not coexist, and that darkness was expelled, and she had her life changed forever. And that's just one story of the amazing things that God is doing through our global partner, TTI. And for all of us, when we walked in, we should have received a handout like this. And for those of you who are joining us via stream, if you would like to access this, all you have to do is you can go to our app or you can go to our website, which is kensingtonchurch.org forward slash plant, and you could see it there. 
But this is an opportunity for us to all get involved in what God is doing in northern India. Because we, along with these six other Metro Detroit churches, have committed to supporting the work of TTI in that region by committing to raising $1 million. Because through TTI, we can plant a new church in a new location for $300. And so what that means, if you do the math, is is that if we're able to reach our goal of $1 million, that we can start 3,333 churches. And Kensington has committed to starting 1,000 of those churches, which I think is incredible. And I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a church planter, but you can be a part. You can, you can become a church planter by giving to this initiative. And you can do it individually. You can do it in partnership with family members, with friends, with coworkers, with neighbors, with your small group, whoever it is. And as I was having conversations even this past week, I was thinking about the impact that we can have in that imagine if we're able to reach our goal of 1,000 churches, and if in a couple of years that becomes 10,000 churches, and in a couple of years that becomes 100,000 churches, how an entire region can be transformed by Jesus. And we, living in Troy, Michigan, can have an impact on people's eternities and people's legacies thousands of miles away. And so if you would like to be a part of this, and if you would like to give, you can go, the information is in here, but you also see it on the side screens. You can uh, give by going to our app. You can also go to our website, kensingtonchurch.org forward slash plant, or by texting the words Kensington Plant to the number 77977 as well. And also, as we continue on on this journey, we also wanted to have a visual, physical representation of our progress and how we are doing. And so out on the East Lawn, if you, some of you may have seen it when you actually walked in, there's actually flower baskets out there. And as we progress and as more churches are started right there, and that's actually my daughter, Mia. And so they actually planted it in kid care this past week. And so she was there. And so you're going to see that there are flowers that are planted. And once those flower beds are totally full, it will mean that we will have reached our goal. So you can monitor the progress just by going out to the East Lawn. But two pieces of good news that I want to tell you about concerning this initiative is that this past week, an organization stepped forward and committed to giving a $100,000 matching gift. And so this is what it means for us in that if we give $300 towards starting one church, they will match that $300 and our impact will be doubled and we'll be able to start two churches. But if we give $600 and our plan is to start two churches, they will match that and we'll be able to actually start four churches, which I think is fantastic, fantastic news. But at the same time, also more good news is this, because if you saw those flower beds outside, you will see that there are already flowers that have been planted. And that's because this is the first week that we've invited all of us as a community to give and to be a part of this. But we've been talking about this for the past two weeks. And so some people have reached out to us and said, hey, you know what? We want to be a part of this. We don't want to wait any longer. So how can we jump in? How can we give? And so people have already given and we're already 10% of the way there. And so, which I think is incredible. You can clap for that. And so what we would love for you to do is to take this home and to read it, to think about it, and most importantly, to pray about it and to just simply to ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How would you like me to be involved in whatever, however you feel like God is leading you for us as a community to say yes. 
And so as I mentioned, we are in the third week of our series, Go. And as I was thinking about the story that we're going to be looking at today, and really the person that we're going to be looking at today, this idea of nicknames came to mind. And just by a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever had a nickname in your life? Just by a show of hands. Awesome. So a lot of us. And I had a nickname. I've had a lot of nicknames in my life, some that I'll share with you and some that I won't share with you. But I remember one in particular that I had when I was a young kid, and I hated it. And then I went, I moved to a new school when I was seven years old, and it totally died, right? And some people even asked me, it's not that hard to figure out because some people guessed it based upon my name. But some people, when I went to that new school, said, hey, can I call you this? And I was like, "Mm -mm, no, never, ever, ever, right? And so it died, and hopefully it will never, ever be resurrected again. But so many of us have nicknames, and we also, we as a culture, we have a tendency to give nicknames to people, and that includes celebrities. Because when you think about it, athletes, actors, singers, so many of them have nicknames. Let me give you a couple of examples. This guy right here, his name is Dwayne Johnson, but we know him better as The Rock, exactly, and that's because his arms are the size of my head. And this guy, if you know him, right, he made golf history last week, right? His name is Phil Mickelson, and at the ripe old age of 50, he became the oldest winner of a major golf championship. But throughout his career, he has been known as, anyone knows what his nickname is? Lefty, exactly, and obviously it's because he is a left-handed. But we not only give nicknames to individuals, but we also give nicknames to couples and groups of people, right? Brad and Angelina, When these two were together, I guess saying Brad and Angelina were just too many syllables. And so we shortened it and we gave them the nickname Brangelina, right? And then these gentlemen right here, does anyone know who these guys are? Yell it out. BTS, exactly. They are a Korean boy band, but they are more than just a boy band. They are a global sensation. These guys are so popular, they have their own meal at McDonald's and their own merchandise line. And if, you've, and if you saw the Friends reunion on HBO this past week, one of their singers actually has a short cameo. It's an interview that he does, but he actually made it on because that's how popular those guys are. But their fans, which are million, more than millions, tens of millions worldwide, they're not just known as BTS fans because that's just too boring. That's just too normal for these guys. They actually have a nickname and their nickname is the army. And so what nicknames do is that they communicate affection, They communicate belonging, but at the same time, they're usually a reflection of an attribute or a characteristic of a person, like the rock or lefty or whatever it may be. And when we look at the scriptures, what we also see is that Jesus gave people nicknames. He gave the people around him, many of them, nicknames. And two of Jesus' closest followers, their names, they were actually brothers, and their names were James and John. And the nickname that he gave these two guys was Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, And it was because they had thunder-like qualities to them. Because these two guys, they were zealous, they were volatile, and they were incredibly ambitious. And we actually see this in a story that's captured and that's told to us in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what he says. As the time approached for him, meaning Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But... The people there, the Samaritans there, did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. This is what we have to understand about what was happening here. There's Jews and there's Samaritans. And at this time, these two people groups, they did not get along. And getting along, it was actually more than that. They hated each other. And this animosity was rooted not only in differing religious beliefs, but also racism. 
because Jews viewed Samaritans as these half-breeds, and obviously it wasn't appreciated by the Samaritans. And so in this Samaritan village, these people, they see these Jewish followers of Jesus entering in and hanging around, and they see them, and they're like, and they can identify them right away. And they're like, "Mm -mm, no, get out of here. You guys are not welcome here. And so, of course, for Jesus' disciples, they're insulted, they're angry, because hospitality was a big value in that culture. And for Jesus' disciples, they had experienced his power, and Jesus had even given them a measure of his power to heal people, to cast out demons, basically to help other people. But James and John, they experience this insult and their suggestion to Jesus as to how to use this power that he had given them was this. It says, when the disciples James and John saw this, meaning these Samaritans insult them, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Right? Anyone, after somebody cut you off, wanted to call down fire from heaven? Right? Anybody? Right? I have. Right? And so, can you imagine if we actually had this power? All we'd see is just fire coming down from heaven. But that's what these guys wanted to do. Right? These guys are like Jesus. These people insulted us. How about we kill them? Right? Great idea, James and John. Because they're basically saying, I don't think these guys know who they messed with. Let's, let's show them who's boss, Jesus. Let's put them in their place. And what we have to understand is that not too long before this whole interaction happens, Jesus had taught these disciples in his well-known sermon, his most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what the kingdom of God was all about, why he had come to this earth. And he had taught them things like what I'm all about and what I want you guys to be about as my followers is I want you to love your enemies. I want you to be peacemakers. I want you to actually show mercy. And now James and John are like, hey, how about we just incinerate them? And it's like this message went one into one ear and out the other. And there's this Korean expression that is well known and well used in my family. And it's the expression, aigo, right? And that's how you say it, right? You can't say it in a happy way. You almost like have to hide your face in your hands and like shake your head and you say, aigo, right? That's what it is. And that's how it's transliterated, right? It's that Korean expression, aigo, right? So we're going to try it together, right? You guys ready? I'm going to count to three and say it with me. One, two, three, aigo, right? That's how you say it. And so if you get nothing out of this message, at least you can leave church saying, hey, you know what? I learned a little bit of Korean. And what's funny to me is you guys are incredibly trusting because you have no idea what you just said, right? You guys could have just been like swearing in church and I just, you know, we're just all cursing together. But what that expression actually means, it means my goodness or good grief. And whenever my kids frustrate me by doing something that I literally just told them not to do, that's what I say. I say, I go, right? And I can imagine Jesus was thinking exactly this because it's an I go moment. He's like, why, why, why do you guys not get what I am about? And Jesus' response to these two guys, James and John was this. It says, he turned And he rebuked them. And then he and his disciples, they went on to another village. And so this was John. This is the son of thunder. What we see is he's zealous. He's volatile. In other stories, we see he's also ambitious. And the reality is, is that he just didn't really love people all that well. But this is what happens to him. As a result of three years spent with Jesus, almost every single waking moment, there was this powerful transformation that happened with him. 
Because John had a front row seat. John, as well as Peter and James, they were part of Jesus' inner circle. The ones, the three guys who were the closest to Jesus. And so he had a front row seat to everything that Jesus did. And he saw how Jesus loved the poor, women and children, tax collectors, the sick, those people who had diseases, the people who that culture and that society looked at and said, "Mm -mm, you guys don't have much value and basically pushed to the margins. And he saw how Jesus stopped for them, spent time with them, talked to them, looked them in the eye and how he communicated value and dignity to them and said, you have this because who you are, regardless of what our culture says, is that you are son and you are a daughter, the most high king. He saw this. He also heard the powerful stories that Jesus told, stories of the prodigal son and of also the prodigal son as, as well as other stories that communicated the extraordinary love of Jesus and the heart of Jesus towards his people. He saw the miracles that he performed, these acts of love, and the greatest act of love where Jesus was tried, tortured, and killed for the sins of humanity. And he saw this and it changed him. And one of the places that we actually see this transformation is in John's writings. Because most scholars credit John with writing five books in the New Testament. And they're the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are all letters, as well as the very last book of the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation. And in the Gospel of John, He mentions the word love 57 times, which is more than the other three Gospels combined. And in this very short book that we have, it's actually originally a letter that's called 1 John. It's only five chapters long. He mentions the word love 46 times. And these are just a few of the instances. This is what he talks about when he talks about love. And this is the guy, the son of thunder, who said, hey, let's kill all these people. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If anyone, he continues on, has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Honestly, we can just look at each of these 46 statements that are present in that book called 1 John. And we can just read all of them and we could probably just go home because they are just that powerful. These extraordinary statements about how Jesus desires to interact and to actually be the embodiment of who he is on this earth. He says love. And the vast majority of the cases in which John uses the word love, it actually comes from this one Greek word called agape. And agape love is the highest level of love referenced in the Bible. And it's a selfless, sacrificial love because agape love is not primarily a feeling because feelings can shift and change. We can fall in love with someone one day and we can fall out of love with them the next day. But rather, agape love is a deliberate decision one makes to seek the well-being of another without expecting anything in return. And it's also a relentless love, one that keeps going and coming and coming and coming and never gives up on a person. And this is the love that John saw in Jesus. And this is the love that he experienced from Jesus. And this is the love that transformed him from a guy, from a son of thunder to now a person who was compelled, who had experienced this love and now was compelled to go out and to share this love with everyone he could. 
And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus gave John a nickname. But what he also did was that he also gave himself a nickname. Because if you've ever read the Gospel of John, how he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I remember reading this, the, the Gospel of John, for the first time as a kid. And reading how he actually describes himself. And I, I remember my first thought. It was like, are you kidding me? How big of a head can a guy have? Because it's like he's saying, hey, look at me, everybody. Out of all of these followers of Jesus, I'm the one that Jesus loves. He loves me more than this person and this person and this person. It seems like that's what he's saying. But it's not. Because I don't believe, and many scholars would agree with me, that this statement, wasn't, it wasn't based in hubris, but rather it was based in humility. In identifying himself in this manner, he wasn't trying to point to how great he was, but rather how great the love of Jesus is. Because what it allowed him to do was it changed him and allowed him to find purpose, identity, and truth. And what's so cool about this statement is, is that he was so secure, he was so confident that he was loved by Jesus. He actually puts it out there. And he says, I'm the one he loves. And the incredible thing is, is that this truth not only applies to John, but it applies to every single one of us here. Because just like John's name is the one who Jesus loved, that is our name as well. Because you are the one who Jesus loves. You are the one who Jesus loves. You are the one who Jesus loves. And you are the one who Jesus loves as well. For every single one of us, that is our name as well. We are loved. That is the truth. But this is the thing. Maybe for some of us today, that's the last thing that we feel. And that maybe when you started streaming today, and maybe, or when you walked into this building today, you didn't come in filled with love, but maybe rather guilt and shame because of something that you have done or maybe something that has happened to you. And even sitting here, you're thinking, you know what? I can't imagine how anyone, let alone the creator of the universe, could actually love me. And if that is you, this is what I want to tell you today. And if you checked out and that's you, I just wanted you to check back in because this may be the most important thing that you hear today. And that God loves us, not because of what we've done or what we can do, which so often is how the world determines our value. But the reason he loves us is simply because of who we are, which is something that we cannot change. And that who you are, who you are, who I am, is that we are a son, we are a daughter of the Most High King. And just simply for that reason, he is madly in love with us. We can do nothing for the rest of our lives, but just simply because we are that, we are his child, that he will love us with a relentless, unending, powerful, beautiful, reckless love. And that is the truth, that we are people. Our name is the one who Jesus loves. And I grew up going to church. And whenever I would go to church, I remember that people would say, oh, you know what? Jesus loves you. And I would memorize Bible verses about how Jesus loves me, like John 3.16, which is a well-known one, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I would sing songs about how Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But as a child, this love that so many people told me about, it always seemed so much like an impersonal, distant concept. That was until high school. 
And I went through this terrible season where I was bullied, where I thought about taking my own life, and where I was processing the anger, the disappointment, frustration, and grief from my dad's death. And he had died years before. And it was in that season that Jesus showed up for me in this powerful, powerful way and felt my pain to the very core of my being. Just as real, just as you all are, just as real as you all are to me. That's how real that experience was. And the love of Jesus went, this love that I had heard about, that I had sang about, that I had read about in the scriptures, that's when it went from being this impersonal, distant concept to now being this personal reality. And so if this is a love that you have never experienced in your life and that you want to experience it, you want to encounter it for the first time, my invitation and my challenge to you is to do what John did, is to follow Jesus down a new path and to explore his practices and his teachings because something that I truly believe is that when we move towards Jesus that he will reveal himself and again he's not playing hide and seek with us it's not like when we're looking for Jesus he's like going to hide in a corner and runs away from us that when we move towards him that he moves towards us and he says this is who I am and this is how deeply I love you and when we encounter that love it changes us because it is that powerful and it is that beautiful And not too long after I had this experience with Jesus, a handful of years later, I felt this overwhelming desire, this overwhelming compulsion that I had to just move out and to share what I had experienced with others. And how I felt nudged to move out was to get involved with the student ministry at my church. And so in terms of the distance of moving out, it wasn't that far, but in terms of comfort level, it was massive. Because up to that point in my life, I had never taught anything about like the Bible or Jesus. I had never led anything like this. So I was thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? But I moved into that space. And the three years that I spent with these students was one of the most beautiful seasons of my life. And it changed me. Because I not only, it was not only the richness of the relationships that I developed with these students. And 20 years later, I'm still friends with many of them. But at the same time, probably the most important thing that happened was that I came to know Jesus' heart in a much deeper way. And he revealed his heart, not only more of his heart, not only for me, but also for the people around me. And then what what that ended up doing was that it then compelled me to move out even more. And I went and I joined a humanitarian organization and I had an opportunity to travel the world. And I saw God move in ways that I had never seen before. And I also saw his heart for people of all different nations, races, and ethnicities. Because that's, what happens. It's this cycle that happens is that when we move towards Jesus and we discover more of who he is, it compels us to then move out. And then when we move out, what happens is, is that when we come, we come to know Jesus better. And then it compels us to move out and go share that with other people. And then we come to know Jesus better and it goes on and on and on. It's a self, it's a beautiful self-perpetuating cycle. And what happens in that cycle is, is that as we move towards him, we begin to think like him. We begin to see the world as he does and we begin to love as he loves as well. But it all starts with encountering and experiencing the love of Jesus because it's only when this happens, it changes us so that we will then move out and to love as he loves. Because that's the truth. When we live love, when we are living loved, it then allows us to then move out and to love others as Jesus does. And that's a powerful truth. And this is something that John, Jesus' disciple, understood so well. 
And this is what he wrote in one of his letters. He says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. Exactly. And he understood this truth that it all starts with encountering the love of Jesus. And that when we understand that we are loved, then we can love others with this same love. And when you think about it, that's the whole foundation. of That's, that's the, really the crux of the life of following Jesus. Because everything that we do is a response. That we are generous because he was first generous towards us. We are able to forgive because he, was first, he, because he first forgave us. And we love because he first loved us. It all starts with that first step, with that movement towards Jesus. And this is what is so important, I believe, to understand that Jesus desires to take every single one of us on a journey from being a son or a daughter of thunder, where we are tempted to judge, where we're tempted to reject, where we're tempted to separate and isolate from people who don't think like us, who don't believe like us, who may not even look like us. And he wants to take us on a journey from that to now being a son or a daughter of love, exactly like John, where we have been so transformed, we desire to move out and to see God transform others. And for every single one of us, something that I know is that we all know that there are huge needs in this world. And forget it even about the world. We all know that there are huge needs in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our cities. And God sees these needs. And I believe when he sees these needs, he asks a very, very important question. And it's a question that Craig Mays, who is our interim lead pastor over at our Clinton Township campus, that he felt like God was asking him years ago after he, he experienced a very, very traumatic event while he lived in New York. And so we're going to see his story in a moment. And it's a powerful story. But before we do, we also want to receive our offering as well. And so the screens are going to show uh, how we can actually give. And so I am so incredibly grateful for you all as a community because in addition to the initiative that we have with TTI, we, there are so many different ways that we are moving out as a community, whether it be locally, nationally, as well as globally. And so if you would like to give to that, there are a number of ways that you can do so. You can text the word Kensington to 77977. You can give via our app or our website. And we also have, for those of us here in the room, we also have buckets at every single entrance and exit. Or you can also send a check in to our physical location here at our Troy campus. And so we want to say thank you. And so together, let's watch Craig Mays' story together. So I really don't like cities, especially big cities. It was incredibly disruptive in 2006 when God began to nudge my wife Chris and me to come to New York City. He was sitting on a bench much like this in Madison Square Park where God said to me clearly, um, you're not a suburb boy anymore. This is your city. This is your home. These are your people. And I felt it and I knew it and I embraced it and there's no looking back. In fact, when I thought of cities, I thought about all the things that probably many of you think of. I thought about crime and danger. It just wasn't attractive to me. Yet God clearly called us to come. It was quite an adjustment for me. And actually for the first few years, I hated it. Eventually I found out it wasn't that dangerous and uh, things weren't that scary and I wasn't anxious all the time and really began uh, to enjoy living in the city and doing the work God called us to do. It was one of those just super hot July days in New York City where the city and the concrete and the brick is just holding the heat in. So I stopped at Starbucks to grab a cold frappuccino before I went to my office and I came to this intersection and I noticed 
on the corner there, there were three guys, they didn't have shirts on, which is very unusual. And I got about, I think it was about right here, and I felt um, some arms come be around me from behind. And because I know a lot of people in this area, I thought it was probably some friend goofing off. And then I felt the hand go down to my back pocket where my wallet was, and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm getting mugged. And so right here, I pivoted, just instinct, pivoted against the building trap, my hand with my wallet right here, and he's trying to pull me away. He's reaching, trying to get my wallet. He's saying things like, old man, just give us your wallet, old man. You know, stop fighting us. He's roughing me up against the wall. I noticed people are walking by and no one's paying any attention. I, the only thing I noticed was my cold frappuccino spilled on the sidewalk. I was frustrated, I think, more about that than anything in the moment. And then finally, the other two guys jump in. And so they push me and one guy starts pounding me on the arm. One guy starts punching me in the gut. And I was just had the sense of this cannot be happening to me kind of blurred almost in the background. I could see people walking by, people across the street. No one was helping me. And there's this moment of just almost desperation, like what's gonna happen? How's this gonna turn out? Finally, someone comes by on a skateboard and stops, a young guy, and, and then a guy dressed in a suit, looked like a Wall Street guy, steps up off the curb onto the sidewalk, and they both said something like, hey, you know, what are you guys doing? And the guys took off running, and these guys are standing there, my good Samaritans, and I straightened up, and. My wallet was still there. I was pretty proud of that. Uh, I look at my hand, it's all cut up and bleeding. Uh, the guy on the skateboard calls the police. It seemed like I blinked and there was all these sirens and, and police came from two different precincts and suddenly I'm, I'm surrounded by about, seemed like about a dozen cops and there was still this sense of surreal that did, this didn't actually happen to me. And I walked away just probably an hour after the mugging and I'm getting on the subway heading to my office. So I, I was you know, in a meeting with my staff having just been mugged and I'm telling them the story, almost felt like outside of myself, just kind of making jokes and getting on with business and say, we have business to do that, you know, I'm okay. They showed a lot of worry and concern for me. Yeah, I didn't really feel it, business as usual. And then for some reason, about a week later, um, I started feeling anxious about it. And then I remember having dreams about it. Really, night after night, I was having dreams where I was back there again and people were beating on me. And it began to change how I was in the city. I began to become very aware of who was around me. I was scanning all the time, looking for people. I would begin to jump at sounds and noises. I would find myself standing against the wall so no one could come up behind me. I would avoid certain blocks. If it looked too deserted, I wouldn't walk down the block because there might be someone there hiding. It just changed the way I was getting around the city. It stayed with me all summer long. I really began to feel like I can't live this way. It's harder for me to do my work this way. I've got to do something with it. So I was trying to process it. I was talking to friends about it. I even actually talked to a counselor. I was encouraged to talk to a counselor about it. So I did that, uh, but it just persists. And so I decided in early September that I was gonna share this in a devotion with the staff. So I sat in my office at the end of the workday. Before I put my pen down, this kind of thought or prayer came to me and I wrote it down and it said, God, I don't want to live in fear. Exclamation point, put my pen down, grabbed my stuff and headed home the two blocks uh, to my apartment. I've probably done this hundreds and hundreds of times, but at this season, because of the mugging, uh, it was not really just an easy walk home because I found that I was hypervigilant, really paying attention to what was going on around me, um, scanning all the time. Uh, I would even say kind of jumpy. So on this particular day, on my journey home, about right here, 
and I'd seen just ahead of me this very large man walking kind of slow, kind of lumbering, and so I gave him wide berth to go around him on, on his left in a very dramatic fashion. As we're both walking, I'm passing him, he turns like this, which kind of startled me and made me jump a little bit, but before I could say or do anything or move by quickly, he said these words. He said, thank you for not being afraid of me. A bolt of lightning hit me. It was so shocking because I had just written these words, God, I don't want to live in fear. And now this man, less than five minutes later, is looking me in the eyes and saying, thank you for not being afraid of me. And I, I have to say, there was no question that was God. I asked him the question. I said, well, why would I be afraid of you? And then he told me a story that he had been released from prison not too long ago. He was in a program and had to get back to his halfway house on time or he would violate parole. And something had happened to his bus ticket. And so he was stranded there. And so he began to walk toward the bus station, but it was almost a three mile walk. And he had made it almost there all the way this way, but he also didn't have any money. So he didn't know what to do when he got to the bus uh, stop anyhow. So we're having this conversation and he's describing to me going block after block after block, uh, anxious, looking at his watch, wondering if he's gonna make it in time and asking for help. And every block he was praying, God, would you please send someone to help me? Block after block after block and no success. So he made it all the way up of all places, right across from my office. And I come out here on the sidewalk, not wanting to live in fear and here we're having this conversation. And so we talked about how I could help him and just a couple blocks up was my bank and I almost never give money out on the streets, but I saw his ID. His story was unbelievable. He had tears in his eyes. I just felt the connection. Plus, I knew that God had sent me to him. There's no question. He felt grateful and was in tears because God sent me to him. And I felt grateful and in tears because I felt God had sent him to me. This was a moment, a divine moment for both of us. And so we took care of getting his bus ticket and he went on to grab his bus and hopefully get there in time. I never saw him again. And I stood there really in, in, I have to say, in awe of God because I knew he was doing a work in my heart right then by bringing this man to me um, whose story would move my heart to do something to help him. And after the fact, as I, as I would replay this over the next few days, I just pictured in my mind's eye, as he was crying out to God, I believe that God was hearing his prayer, block after block, mile after mile, as this man desperately needed help. And I began to picture it from God's perspective of him longing to help this man. That's the desire of his heart, to help him. But he needs someone to respond. So God might be asking the question, who do I have? Who do I have that will listen to me? Who that I have who is not living in fear? Who do I have that will provide help for this man? Because God is not gonna drop a bus ticket down on the streets. He's not gonna drop a $20 bill. He needs someone, some person, some man, some woman to respond to this man's cry for help. So as time has gone by uh, from this experience, it's really become for me a paradigm of how God works in the world. At this very moment today, there are people all over the globe, all over the planet Earth, all over our cities who are crying out to God for help, who are looking for answers to prayer. And God hears every single one of those. And the challenge for those of us who are following Jesus and want to build and grow his kingdom is when God is looking for someone, when he's asking the question, who do I have? Will he look at us and say, oh good, I've got him, I've got her, because they are going to respond. They are going to be the answer to this prayer. That's a way that I want to live. That's a way that I want for you to live, that you are living your life, eyes open, ears open, 
ready to respond to God. When someone is asking God for help, God sees you, he sees me, and he says, oh, great. They're going to respond. They're going to be the answer to this prayer. And that's the question. It's such an important question, a question that every single one of us have to ask ourselves and wrestle with. Who do I have? And that when God sees that family in our neighborhood who is struggling to make ends meet, he asks and he looks around and he says, who do I have? When he looks at that colleague, that coworker who is struggling with loneliness and depression and he looks around that office and he says, who do I have there? When he looks at a remote village in northern India and he sees that there's no church in that village and people do not know him, he looks around and he says, who do I have? Who's going to go? Who's actually going to do something about it? And my hope is, is that when he looks at us as a community, that he would see a bunch of people, a huge group, a huge community of people who are willing to say yes to the way that he is moving us. And that when he looks at us, he'll say, yes, I have these people. I have Cameron, I have Christine, I have John, I have Paul, I have Jinhee, and I have all of these people who are willing to go. And I hope he doesn't say, oh, you know what? Oh, there's Andrew, right? I guess like he's there, so I guess he's better than nobody. Like he's living and breathing. And I hope that's not his response to us. Who do I have? Because what will fuel this response to go, this movement to go, is when people become when sons and daughters of thunder become sons and daughters of love. When we have encountered the love of Jesus in such a profound way that we now have our eyes and our ears open to how God is moving around us. Because if we want to be the physical embodiment of Jesus in this world and in the process create a more beautiful world, we have to feel, we have to see, we have to value, and we have to love as he does. We have to have his heart. Because then and only then can we be the answer to the cries and to the prayers of this world. A world that is in such desperate need of him. And so when we leave today, when every single one of us leaves today, that when uh, our ushers are going to give you a bracelet like this, and it has a question on this bracelet, and I hope you'll wear it this week and the weeks to come, and it says, who do I have? And that when we look at it this week, I hope that it will remind us to do two things. And the first is, is that every single day to move towards Jesus in some way, whether it be reading the scriptures, praying, growing in community, whatever it is to take that step every single day to know him better and to encounter that love and be transformed by that love. But at the same time, that it would also remind us that when God nudges us, when he says, hey, you know what? I want you to move towards that coworker. I want you to move towards that family. I want you to move towards that remote village in India. And I want you to do something that we wouldn't say, ah, you know what, God, I really got something right now. And like, how about you come back to me next week and we'll talk. That we wouldn't be people who say maybe or no, but in that moment, we will be people who say yes. When God says, who do I have? And he comes and says, will you move on my behalf? to expand and to build my kingdom and to create a more beautiful world here. That our response would be that of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. When God asked, who do I have? Who will I send? And Isaiah's response was, here I am, Lord, send me. Let's bow our heads and pray. So God, we thank you 
that you care so deeply about this world because this world is filled, Lord, with people, Lord, that you so deeply love, with your sons and with your daughters, Lord. And every single one of us know, Lord, that there are so many needs in this world, God. And as it breaks our heart, it breaks your heart even more. And so God, that as you scan this world, and even as you scan this community, God, that when you look at us and that you ask the question, who do I have? That you would see person after person after person, Lord, who is willing to say yes to the nudges and the ways that you are moving us. May that be our community. People who have been so transformed that we desire to move out and through us desire to see you transform the lives of the people around us as well. And so we thank you, God, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. And so what we want to do right now is we want to close with a song and to really respond to the message. And this title of the song is Have My Heart. And really, it's a prayer to saying, God, that you would have all of me, not just parts of my life, but all of my life, so that when you actually call me to go, that I am willing to move. So if you are able to, we'd love for you to stand up and let's sing this out together.
So as we close today, a quick reminder to take this home, love for you to read it, think about it, and most importantly, to pray about it as to how God would like for you to be involved. And also, if you, anyone would like to receive prayer, our prayer team is out in the lobby. And if you are somebody who is newer with us, we'd love to meet you. And so we'd love for you to go out to the hub and you'll see people with orange shirts on. And we'd love to meet you, answer any questions that you may have. But thanks so much for being here, everyone. Have a great rest of your weekend. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.